you, you lie there on the tarmac and somebody came up to me and they said, oh, I've called an ambulance. So I was thinking, that's a bit melodramatic. But then I, re- <laughs> then I realized I couldn't actually move. <laughs> I had this junior doctor prodding me for hours going, I think she's fine. And I'm like, I don't think I am. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Run-In. This week, our main interview is with British orienteering, I think legend is probably a, a suitable term. It's thrown around a lot, but I think it applies in this case. Uh, Claire Ward, and she talks very openly and candidly with us about a horrific accident that she had um, at the start of her senior career and how she came back from it to represent uh, GB numerous times at World Championships, including at a home walk in 2015 in Scotland. And it is a brilliant Brilliant chat and very inspiring as well if you're struggling for a bit of motivation. Look forward to that one. But uh, Catherine, there's actually quite a bit of news this week as well. Yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't know where you want to kick off. For once, for once well, in the last let's 10 months. The, let's start with the fact that there's actually been some orienteering. I mean, we were yes. both at an uh, event, a TVOC event at Bradenham, which was fantastic. Although mm-hmm. we were both a bit scrappy, some more than others. Yeah, that's me. Uh, it was, it was, did not go very well when you lose four minutes to the first control. I tell you that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it didn't really improve necessarily as we went along from there. Will, you did a bit better than me. You, you won. So even if you say it was a bit scrappy. But we also, um, you also were at the um, first kind of test race this spring race over at, was it Nottingham Trent Uni? Yes, yes. Clifton Campus at Nottingham Trent Uni, uh, organised by Nottingham Orange, uh, Nottingham Orienteering Club and uh, Dave Scorer in particular. So uh, thanks very much to them for putting it on as well and all the organisers for getting it going because it was a, an elite-only race, which there's not too many of them and it just asked that extra little bit from clubs and volunteers when it's a small start field as well and they're not going to make you know much money from it. So firstly, yeah, thanks to them for putting it on it was a really great event as well it was weird to be back racing and having you know silent starts and all of these warm-up zones and 15 minute call-ups and yeah yeah, the full shebang so it was a it was it was really odd to be back but really nice as well and we did some uh, squad training afterwards uh after the race as well and some knockout style training which was which was good fun Yeah. yeah that's really cool and so it was. Sele- it's a selection race for um, kind of Europeans-ish, but also Euro- some things going forward in the future. Yeah, yeah. For Europeans, for those who are eligible to go. So um, for those not aware at the moment in Britain, each home nation has a different uh, eligibility criteria for people who can travel overseas to compete. And certain people living in certain regions will have... Um, a different dispensation from their local authority to be able to travel overseas. And um, it was a selection race for those people who could travel, but also an all-known form checker and a contributor to walk selections later down the line as well. So kind of important to turn up, regardless of if you can travel to U- Europeans or not, and uh, and show what you could do. So who did well then? Uh, I would say Megan Carter-Davis did particularly well mm-hmm. in, uh, yeah. in winning the women's by, uh, by a minute, which was pretty impressive yeah, and be- has beating Alice Leak was also in that race I think she was second yeah 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 and uh securing selection to Europeans as well which I'm sure we'll get onto the the GB team for that because I think it's one of the first international teams uh, selected for the, the European champs mm-hmm. um and Chris Mivard won the men's as well but uh yeah coming back from Covid a few week uh, kind of a couple of months ago I think so mm-hmm. uh getting back over over those Covid symptoms and uh and winning the men's race a lot tighter in the men's than the women's, though. Yeah, um, it was said. really close, and but you're a little bit off the pace in terms of time-wise, Will. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. So I had a a scrappy run, I would say, um, choosing suboptimal routes and and costing myself because going in, I felt in really good shape actually, and uh, was quite frustrated after the finish, um, and and for the day or so after of of what. I put down because I don't think it was representative of the shape that I'm in and um, of the training that I've been doing. It's just quite frustrating that the navigation wasn't there. But mm. I think it shows you that now in Britain, we've got to a stage where you can't rely on just being in good shape. You've got to navigate as well, which is a good place for the for the team to be in. And that is orienteering in a nutshell. So Exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah. It is still, <laughs> you've got to, it's 50% of the job, isn't it? So let's talk about then those uh, selections for the, these European champs and these are sprint only they start on the 13th of May 
uh, there's a sprint relay, a knockout sprint, and like a, a what I'm calling, and I'm calling in commentary, a classic sprint, although it's not that classic. Like it feels <laughs> like that's kind of the I mean, there's no other way for me to describe it. Um, and this crucially is it starts four days before certainly in England uh, international travel is allowed. So uh, mm. we have selected a team of four. Um, Joe Shepard and Ralph Street are both, I believe, in Norway. They are able yep. to get to Switzerland, which is where the European champs are. Uh, Thomas or Tam Wilson is in Spain. He's also able to get there. And then Megan Carter Davis is the only one from currently living in the UK who's actually uh, allows, able to make it there. She's got, I believe, some kind of uh, special dispensation from Sport Wales to be able to be allowed to go, which is um, believe so. absolutely kudos to her. And yeah, uh, we wish it could be more than four people, but congrats <laughs> to those four anyway. Um, it means yeah. we have and enough to make up a, a, a sprint relay team, which is great. Definitely. And particularly congratulations to, to Tam as well, because that's his first senior selection. Um, and I think first selection for a GB team for quite a few years. I'm not sure he got selected in his last couple of years as a junior. So really nice to see that he got a senior selection and can go and represent GB, which is which is fantastic. Um, and I, I bet he probably didn't think that when he, when he moved to Spain and wasn't going to do the test races. So it's, it's, it's really nice to see that as well. And the fact that there's going to be a relay team, I think that was probably a fear that the relay is somewhere that we've performed really well over the last few years and maybe underperformed slightly despite mm. coming onto the podium. And uh, the fact that we can still compete in that is, is really good and that there's still going to be a high calibre team going. Um, anyway, we wish all of them um, luck, and of course, uh, I'm yeah, actually not absolutely to commentate, but I'm I will be doing so from where I'm sat right now in my room. So uh, <laughs> that's um, a shame that um, yeah we can't be over there to kind of cheer them on as well. Um, more news in that O'Ringen has been postponed again. Now going to be Uppsala 2022, which is just prolonging mm. my embarrassment. I feel like having done all this commentary like the fact that i still haven't done an o-ring in is just actually quite embarrassing so i have to wait another year until i can actually go to like the mecca of orienteering and yeah anyway mm. so that how is many that people is it at o-ring in is that twenty thousand, thirty thousand yeah, or so, so. Yeah. It, it varies depending on where it is i'd imagine this one because it's more accessible which is kind of why we're going not the ones like really far in the north where it's really hard yeah. to get to um uh, yeah it would be quite a lot of people and it's a lot personally i'm kind of glad they've made this decision this early i was a bit worried mm. that it was going to be like a few weeks before and i was going to say well can i go can i not yes it's on for the swedes but can i go as a brit am i allowed to travel what's the deal am i gonna get stuck there who knows so i'm quite pleased that yeah either i'd have loved the whole thing to go ahead with no issues but i get kind of the second one it, it's just kind of easy more personally for me that it's just no it's off but very very yeah. sad um to see that one mm. summer competition is falling by the wayside with the eucalyptus shifting as well yeah exactly yeah um and then i kind of I think our final bit of news is the um, British orienteering strategy that's been published in the last week, um, mm. which is titled oh. Thriving Clubs for a New Generation. Yeah, so t tell me about this one, Catherine, because I've, I've not read through this yet. Yeah, it's actually not too long if you wanted to go and read through it. It's quite accessible. And um, I've kind of written down a few things that I thought were interesting from it. And their main kind of goals are increased participation and membership, especially in the, like they said, 16 to 40 age class. We know we've got very kind of much an aging population in orienteering. But one thing for me, very interesting, improving the reputation of the sport. The third one, international right. success, but also satisfaction throughout the performance pathway. You know, there, there needs to be feel, people feel like they're satisfied with that pathway wherever they are in that in terms of performance and also support for clubs and volunteers like ultimately you know thriving clubs for a new generation the clubs are the ones in my opinion who do the most work to get new participants new members into british orienteering into orienteering anyway and for british orienteering's role needs to be you know they can't really do much without the clubs their best way is to support what clubs are doing on the ground mm. yeah yeah 
Oh, uh, well, sounds good. Yeah, yeah, and I think that the, the yeah. themes of like changing perception, like that's one that I'm really, you know, really kind of passionate about, and particularly with targeting young people and then the running and adventure communities. You know, we can't sell orienteering yes. to everybody, but let's think about who we should, who is most likely to come along um, on board, and it's yeah, it's people who are already have some sort of interest in sport running outdoors adventure those kind of things is mm-hmm. there's also a theme on creating engaging experiences so i could like there was a phrase about like having a customer service attitude does everybody who'd gone to your event are they feeling satisfied that they've had a good time when they've been at your event you know uh, do they feel that you know they've had a great experience just going orienteering have they enjoyed it and there's one that's foundations for success, which is all the admin side. But I think one of the, another thing that stuck out stuck out for me was strengthening lifelong pathways, and that m- meaning alternative pathways to young people. So it's not all just about can you compete at the highest level. It's do you want to become a controller, a planner, a mapper, a um, a coach, something you know, something else you can like. Or, or even none of those things, but just enjoy participating in the sport for the sake of participating in it. And personally, what I'm trying to do is show people, young people, that they can be involved in the sport. I'm not competing at the highest level. I'm nowhere near at the highest level, but I'm taking a lot of enjoyment from participating in this sport in a very different way and through mm. the coaching and, and this and the podcast and the commentary. Yeah, it's... I think they're pretty much they're on the right lines, aren't they? It's interesting that uh, the both are doing this when you see other other sporting bodies probably haven't been as reactionary to the pandemic as they should have been. I'm thinking kind of like the athletics governing bodies, maybe where they they seem like they've missed a good opportunity, and I think actually both putting this in place and recognizing that change is needed and and going about this in a new strategic way is a really good thing. Um, it's probably Although coming I'm at the sure right time been, as well. This has been building since way before uh, yeah, the pandemic. Yeah, probably. I'm sure. Yeah, but, yeah I guess. The but the fact that they're all like, it's not just the pandemic that's probably kicked them into gear. They've actually been thinking about it, and now it's it's going to be happening is is a good thing compared to other national bodies which seem to be, you know, really struggling to deal with how do we keep ourselves above water now in this new world and how do we attract new people and so forth yeah i mean this should be the ideal time to attract people who want to be outdoors who want to be absolutely participating in everything um yeah i mean for me the question still remains on a on an operational level you know this is this is i this is great kind of goals and aims and themes and stuff like that but but actually the steps to achieve them and and whether that is a feasible yes, thing true. for yeah. British orienteering to do, I think a lot of people will agree that that these things are very important and and that are they are priorities even in the sport. But the actual achieving them remains to be seen. Yeah, one can only hope. But let's move on now, Catherine, to our main interview of the episode, and we'll chat to Claire. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Firstly, Claire, kind of, I guess we'll, we'll dive straight into it. When did you first start uh, your orienteering career? Well, like a lot of people, I've um, always done orienteering. My parents did orienteering at Bangor University in the early 70s. And um, we, um, I was born in South Wales. We oriented there before moving up to, to Scotland. So, yeah, for my whole life. I think the first orienteering course I did by myself was probably Tayside 85, which shows how Ooh. old I am. <laughs> Blimey heck. Um and what when was it that you first started taking orienteering seriously? Um I guess, well I guess seriously is a is a loose term. Yes, <laughs> it is a loose term. So um I've never I've never come from a running background or a sporting background. I've always done straight orienteering. Um and I suppose I started doing running training maybe when I was thirteen or fourteen just to get better at orienteering. Um I was never that good an orienteer at that age um and i think what made a real difference to me was going on a little junior coaching weekend and someone taught me how to take a compass bearing and visualize which maybe someone should have told me about five years earlier because it <laughs> did stop me dropping <laughs> 10 minutes at every control and um 
all of a sudden, second year 16 was when I got into the Scottish Junior Squad and um, got picked for tours and things. And then quite rapidly, um, first year 18, I did my first junior international. So, yeah, I, I was I was I was never one of these people that wins W10 and progresses onward from that. So, ah, <laughs> oh, hate those people anyway. Uh, over, <laughs> yeah, I was just... I was never one of those people. It's, did you uh... not win W10? Catherine? No. Oh, I won W14. Oh right, it. okay, but that's yeah. it. And then my, that was the peak of my career, such as it was. And then it's all mm. gone downhill from there. <laughs> oh, dear. That's not good. <laughs> no. I would, I would say the pinnacle was the uh, the mini relay double of the um, the JK and the British. You see, I'm so old. They didn't. Oh, no, they did have the mini relay. I just started when I did it. But yeah, absolutely classic. It's great. <laughs> Brilliant. Great fun. Brilliant fun. Um, so first junior international race then, was that Jaywalk in 95? Um, I did. I did what was called the Six Nations, which is now Jack. Um, the year before ah, that, right. I was quite a surprise pick for and them on '95 because my sister was in the '94 team and she wanted to be in the '95 team, and she was like, "How on earth did you get picked over me?" <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't. She wasn't too impressed, but. I went to Denmark and I must have been the last pick and I don't think I've ever run a course as far as the, uh, I didn't, I didn't realise it was a middle race for starters. Um, I found that out in the pre-Jaywalk camp. I was oh right, I'd done a few middle races, that was fine. But I don't think I'd ever done um, a course as far as um, the, the classic. So that was a bit of an epic, but so I, that was I about the around. time. That was about the time the middle races were first coming in then? I think it was the first middle race, yeah. They don't at Jaywalk, yeah. So it was a bit of a surprise, but I, I got round. That was the main thing. I wasn't. And it didn't I wasn't put you off. It didn't. Well, it, was, it was quite off putting, but it was good fun. So, um, so I trained a bit harder the, the next year in Romania, and then the year after that was um, Belgium. But I never, I never did great at Jaywalk. I think a lot of. Um, a lot of um, Great Britain internationals are the same. You know, the results get better as they get to the senior ranks. So it's, mm. it's interesting the way it works like that. What was Romania like in the mid-90s to orienteering? <laughs> it, was, it was great fun. So uh, the orienteering, the Romanians seemed to do suspiciously well. Some, were in, <laughs> some Romanian orienteers that nobody had ever heard of before. And certainly the Romanian guy, I don't think anyone's heard of since. So that was interesting. But... Um, it was mainly the other, the, the, the cultural aspects. They'd never heard of vegetarians. So um, the vegetarians on our team would just got potatoes the whole week, which we found hilarious. So, <laughs> I think it was, it was quite, it was quite um, basic, put it that way. It was fun though, all the same. So I guess, how did you, how did you first train for that classic of stepping up to that to that event or was it just kind of thrown in completely at the deep end then 95 and then just kind of progress through naturally having been thrown in and then get better yeah. for those few years I think so you realize after what you've been to one what it's all about so you don't want to do as badly next year so yeah you learn to train further I was at Sheffield University I think after the first one so um some of the people around you you know people like um Jenny Peel and Kim Kim Baxter, you know, they're they're all doing the proper training. You learn from them, really. Mm. And yeah, that was kind of the heyday, or moving into the heyday of Sheffield University, wasn't it? With them coming through, Matt Crane, Ollie yeah, Johnson, that's right. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So good training group there to get started with into the senior ranks. Ooh. Yeah, it's the place to be. Um, we we used to win um, bucks at, at that time every year. I think um, you either st you still either went to Sheffield or Edinburgh, and Edinburgh was where I grew up. And I knew my mum would be ringing on my doorbell at like Saturday mornings <laughs> at eight o'clock, going hi. So it was quite an easy decision to choose Sheffield, really. <laughs> yeah, I think well, that's yes, enough. definitely, definitely fair enough. Sadly, the winning days have seemed to have gone now for Sheffield, but. We they'll come back they'll come back they'll come back it's always cyclical. Yeah. Um, it's a great place to it's a great place to train though because you've got the peak district on your doorstep and um certainly if you live in crooks you know five minutes you're on the mud and you're on the mud for hours it's amazing mm, that is people true. think of sheffield as a horrible like rather bleak industrial landscape but the university it's just not at all it's amazing 
Yeah, well, we, bo- we both went to Sheffield. We know we all, all three of us here went to Sheffield yeah. and we can yeah. definitely vouch. Like, and it feels, me having done my undergrad in Durham and then going, which is tiny, absolutely tiny mm-hmm. place, going to Sheffield, like it's a proper city. There's lots going on as well as just the being great to great place to run and everything. Yeah, mm. it's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, and then 98, kind of there was a bit of a freak year. I think, and I don't mm-hmm. know if many people know this because I think you had a car accident, didn't you? And yeah, was I was year? running. Yeah. Yes, that was that year. So it was my first year, twenty-one, and I I hadn't I hadn't had a great year. I was twenty-one, but you know I really enjoyed myself and I was really loving orienteering. So I'd finished university. I went around Scandinavia with some friends all summer, just different competitions, training, just loving it. And then I started a proper job in um, at PwC in Manchester. My husband was in Leeds and I went up to visit one night and I went out for a run and um, I was only going 10 minutes one direction, 10 minutes back. And it was on the way back. I was hit by a car going 45 miles an hour, which <laughs> which is, a yeah, not, not ideal, really, not ideal. So the police told me afterwards that um, only one in 20 people survived getting hit at that speed. And I was that one. So it's quite, <laughs> yeah, it's quite... It, it's quite a shocking statistic, really. It's quite sobering. So the damage I did to myself, I was very fortunate after the impact. Um, I didn't hit my head. I didn't go over the car or under the car. I span off the car, which is crucial. And also, I landed in the middle of a junction. So I managed to avoid hitting any railings, any street furniture, any curbs. So I landed in the middle of the road. And um, you, you lie there on the tarmac and... <laughs> I was, it was very shocking, very shocking. And I, I couldn't breathe. My first day, I couldn't breathe and I started freaking out. And then, um, and then I was just really badly winded and I started breathing then. And somebody came up to me and they came up to me and they said, oh, I've called an ambulance. And I was thinking, that's a bit melodramatic. <laughs> but then I, re- <laughs> then I realized I couldn't actually move. <laughs> so um, they took me to hospital and it took them ages to work out what the problem was. I had this junior doctor prodding me for hours going, I think she's fine. And I'm like, I don't think I am. So they eventually sent me off for x-ray and they, they said that what had happened was that my knee had hit the car and taken the impact and it had driven the hip ball through the socket. And they were telling me, this was like midnight in this hospital. They were saying, well, that's a, that's a really, really nasty injury. And I was like, oh yeah, whatever. You might have to operate then. So they said, no, we have to operate now because if you do that damage, you've got these broken bones in your pelvis and you've got quite considerable risk of um, bursting your arteries or getting your leg and obviously internal bleeding, horrendous. So they took me off. They did the operation. And I came around the next morning when there was some surgeon guy doing a ward visit and you pull back the curtain, there's like 15 people. And he came and he said to me, oh, he didn't say to me, he said to the other people, he said, oh, this person here, she's a runner. And she was hit by a car last night, fractured her acetabulum, and she'll never run again and she'll be in pain for the rest of her life. Oh, what? Great way to deliver the news. (laughs) He didn't even say it to me. And, you know, until then, I'd been sort of merrily, naively thinking, yeah, that'll be fine, that, yeah, whatever. You know, do whatever you have to do, pin me up. And, you know, that, that moment, that moment, you know, the previous life I'd had just completely ended on the spot. It was such horrific, horrific shock to hear this news and um you know I, I didn't understand what the problem was and they they shipped me off there's two hospitals in Leeds and they, they'd scrape me off the road and take me to one and they shipped me off to the other one and the junior doctor said there's someone at the other one that knows what they're doing you know don't listen to him listen to the next person so they took me to the other hospital and the doctor um was absolutely expert you know I was very lucky one of my friends one of my parents friends orthopedic surgeon said the place you want to be is with this guy so he did an operation a few days later. He managed to fix the socket perfectly. But he said to me, there's a big chunk out of your hip bone. You won't, if you run on that, you will need a hip operation. You need a hip replacement within six months. And they only last like five years. You'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 30. So he said, you know, you can't, you can't run on that. You know, you'll be damaged for life. So this was obviously a, <laughs> a major blow. You realize that you know, if you, we're orienteers, we go orienteering at the weekends. Our friends are orienteers, our mm. chats are orienteering. You know, the clothes we buy are orienteering. I couldn't even envisage what people do at the weekend if they're not orienteering. I was like, 
am I going to have to go shopping? You know, I have to go to the pub and drink <laughs> on a normal. Saturday afternoon. Am I going to have to go and watch football? I, it's just so unfathomable. And you do realise um, I had I had three months on crutches and I'd go orienteering at the weekends, mainly my husband would be going or Jason Inman, who was a good friend, you know, he'd take me along because he'd think, well, I need to get out of the house. And you'd see orienteers and they'd, they talk about the they talk about the course all the time, and they talk about where they went. And it's really hard if you're if you're not running to go and be in that atmosphere. It's it was mm. it was hard because you'd see your friends, but it would also be extremely depressing. So yeah. at that and I did I I must I'd like to say I think of productive things to do with my life instead of orienteering. But I was twenty one, and you think you're invincible at that age, so. I spent the three months I was on crutches pretty much just crying all day, every day. <laughs> it was just, it was horrific. And I had a lot of regrets about the athlete that I wasn't and the training that I didn't do. And I was frustrated because I was thinking, well, gosh, if only I'd taken it seriously, I could have done much better. And I'm thinking all the training that I could have done, it didn't help that my husband lived in a flat with um, a bunch of international athletes. They were hill runners and um, cross country runners. And you know they'd be going to the World Hill Ring Champs, and I think, well, I never even took my training seriously. It was, it was very frustrating. Um, but after three months um, of being on crutches, I went back for another checkup, and the orthopedic surgeon said, "Oh, actually, your bones regenerating." He said, "I'm sorry, I didn't really realise how you know being 21, how much your bone has regrown." So he said, "You know." Right. The, the bits missing on your hip ball is actually growing back. So it got to the stage where he, he said, well, you will be able to run again on that. So I, I had the strange situation of feeling utter despair and then having, it was like a bad dream. The next day you realize that, yeah, that, that, that dream, you know, it, you've got, you've got, you've got the, you can live your life again. You've got another chance of being the athlete that you wanted to be. So it was a real revelation. And, um, and at, at that point, was it you can run again or at that point you can be an international athlete again? Because those two things are not <laughs> yeah, the same. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it was you can run again because there are problems um, with the damage that, he, that, that had happened. So the surgeon said to me um, before he operated the second time, he said, well, I could um, I could I could do what I do for little old ladies and I do a little scar and I fix it up so it will be okay for a bit. Or I could do a proper operation, but that would mean that I'd have to cut through your glutes, I'd have to cut through your stomach muscles, I'd have to have a good rummage around and um, you'd end up with big scars. So he obviously I went for the, the better job, but <laughs> as a result, I have got um, very weak glute muscles on the left side and I've got metal work that sort of impinges on my hip flexor on the left side. So there's certain, there's, I, it, the, the doctor that did say that I would be in pain when I walked the whole time, he wasn't, he wasn't right, but he wasn't all that far off because <laughs> certainly there's certain terrains I run in, it is quite painful, but I'm glad to be running. What can I say? Mm. And so, did you always, did you always mm, want to come back? Yes, always, because yeah, when you're told just... you can't do something, I don't know about you, but I've got a very stubborn personality and no one tells me what I can do. So. Right, yeah, fair enough. So, and also being told you can't do something is, when when I go running now, even when I'm tired, even 20, 22 years on, um, I just appreciate being out there. I know that there's people that can't do that. You know, the situation I was in before where I was told I wouldn't be able to. Every time I run a path of seat, you know, you feel the burn in your calves, the burn in your lungs, and you just feel incredible that you, it reminds you that, that, that you're there and you're doing what you were told you couldn't do. And mm. you, I think of people that, that bodies aren't able to do that every time. And I think, yeah, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it because I can. It's, it's brilliant. And it's, you know, I never need motivation to go running. I wouldn't recommend everyone gets hit by a car, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so appreciated. Every time I can run out the door, it's just, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant for me. Oh, wow. that is fantastic, actually. I'm getting pumped just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll stop complaining now. This is 
Yeah, sun shining. It's all good. Exactly. And, and obviously, you did, and you did come back as well because you made yeah the world champs so, and yeah, that's right. I think so. About six months after my accident, when I first tried going in the forest again, and um, it was such a great feeling to be back. That's all I wanted to do. It was so so beautiful to be running in, in the trees, but at the same time, I realised that. Um, I didn't have the muscle coordination at all to do it. So, you know, I'd get to a log and I'd have to stop and actually physically lift my leg over the log so I could get over it. It was a bit ridiculous. So I concentrated on road running for a bit because you realise road running, everyone says it's really bad for your joints, but you don't need much in the way of movement to do it. You just need to be able to lift up one foot, say five five centimetres off the ground and swing it forward. It's not like running in terrain. Mm. And... Also, I, I, I'd also assessed um, what the weaknesses were in myself as an athlete. And growing up in Scotland, you're always pretty strong because you're used to running through really tough terrain. Um, I knew I was plenty strong enough, but I was very slow. And you can't get away with being slow if you want to do well in the senior ranks. So um, I got a little running book around how to be quick. I still have it. I refer to it quite a bit. And um, it's training schedules, just basic cross-country training schedules. Um, intervals twice a week, a tempo run or a race at the weekend. And I did that for about three or four years and just got very, very much quicker than I was before. And then as I got stronger and went back in the forest, I realized that, you know, I, I, I could still compete at orienteering. So it's it's nice having a break from it to try something else. But, but the forest always pulls you back, so so much mm-hmm. nicer. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I guess what was that? Was that a nice sensation of proving people wrong of getting back on the team as well? Because I imagine there's a lot of people who, who wrote you off. And it's not proving anyone wrong apart from that doctor that told me I couldn't do apart, it, really. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and that was quite hard because um, when when I was running at the European, I did the European Champs and some World Cup sort of around 2004, 2006. And I kept getting injured. And it, it is because of the knock-on injuries from the damage that was done. And every time, I, every time I'm running well and running pain-free, I do think, you know, I'm winning, I'm proving it wrong. But every time I'd get injured, which was often, you know, it would be like, you know, he was proving himself right in my mind. I'd be like, I'd, I'd get quite, I'd get quite depressed when I got injured and I got injured a lot. So in, is it 2006, I stopped because it just wasn't making me happy. I resigned from the squad and I thought time to do something else. Um, and around that time, I got pregnant with my first child, and um, that was that was great. But once you've had children, you do realise that um, the good thing about orienteering is split start. You can both compete in a race. So instead mm-hmm. of going all the way to a hill race and one of you has to watch with the kids and one of you does it, you can actually both compete in the orienteering. So I, strange enough, I started doing a bit more, but just within Scotland, nothing too competitive. And um, I really learned to love orienteering again, just doing that. I didn't go into any JKs or Britishes or anything. But um, it was just running races that I wanted to to run against people who were friends. So it was um, John Tully. If I could beat John Tully and John Musgrave, it was was a good race. And I, I really, really enjoyed that. And then I had my daughter in 2010 and um after I'd had her, we were living in the countryside and um, it was quite a hard maternity leave because my husband was working long hours. I was at home in the countryside with the kids a lot. So we moved back into Edinburgh. And and also, because because it had been quite exhausting maternity leave, I always made the time to go running. When you spend all day with the kids and you're really drained, um, making the time to go out running is so relaxing. You get to enjoy you know, an hour of peace, an hour of time to yourself. And it, it's really important. It's really good to do. So I ended up getting quite fit from that. And then um, my running club were doing the FRA relays. And I was quite annoyed because I've suggested to them, I said, the FRAs are great. You should do the FRAs. It'd be brilliant. What are the and FRAs? Said, yeah. hmm? What are the FRAs? Oh, the British Bell Running Relays. Ah, oh, there we go. They're I translate fun. for our um, wider audience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So my running club, Hunters Bog Trotters, hadn't really done them before. Um, so I'm like, we should do them. So we entered them and they had a ladies team and they didn't pick me. <laughs> I was like, I told you to do the race, come on. 
So I was a bit outraged. And um, so I'm like, right, I'll, pre- I'll show you wrong. The, um, the National Cross Country Champs were maybe four, four or five months later. So I decided to get really fit so I could prove people wrong for the National Cross Country Champs. And um, so I got in really good shape. And yeah, I, I, did, I did beat people that had made the FRA team at the, um, the Scottish National Cross Country Champs that year. So I was quite pleased with myself. But having, having done that, I accidentally got got fit enough to get picked to the world champ. So <laughs> it was it was what a lovely position to be in. <laughs> yeah, it was quite strange. So I went to the British Sprint in middle that year just because it was South London where my in-laws were. So we, if there's if races down there, we tend to go down there, stay with the in-laws. They can see the grandchildren. And um, I did the British Sprint champs. They were in. Brighton and I hadn't done any yeah, elite yeah. races for so long and I'd just been in really enjoying the world champs and I did the British sprint champs and I'd done really well in the qualifier I won the qualifier by about a minute and then I did the final and I really messed it up I came eighth and I was really angry with myself because I'd been quite enjoying orienteering uh, with no pressure and and after that that race I was really Oh, I felt I'd spoilt it, you know, I've been enjoying the sport and then I came eighth and I'm really angry at myself and I was like, why did I do that? Why did I go back into elite orienteering? Why did you because... apply the pressure again? Yeah. Exactly. No, why have I ruined the sport? But the next day was um, the middle champs and um, my husband's, I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I've been enjoying orienteering in Scotland. I don't want to do this silly, silly sport. And he said, well, we paid 25 quid for the entry. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna go and jog round anyway <laughs> so we went to the british middle champs and um i just i just went around to enjoy it and i just tried focusing on the orienteering and nothing else and um i won it by two minutes so that got me picked for the world champs it was a selection race so i wasn't really planning on going to the world champs in 2011 but ended up there so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one of the hardest ones in years as well yeah no. <laughs> yeah it was i got i got picked for the middle and the long that year and um i didn't qualify in the middle it was very very tricky terrain unbelievably mm. tricky terrain and the long i made the final but yeah made mistakes i think that was the one there's a bit of classic gps i think it's one mina of the Kalpi. swedish mina Kalpi, is it made yeah. a massive mistake at number two and walked back oh my yeah. word but <laughs> everyone everyone we made massive mistakes that year. I think the map was too detailed to read. Really, it was quite tricky. It was mental. I remember doing the spectator races. I think I asked about ten different people to <laughs> tell me where I was, and that was on the way to yeah. number one. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was. It was interesting. So, what was that kind of? That's a very different experience coming back from your second pregnancy compared mm. to the injury. Um, yeah. Why then carry on after 2011? What did you just have the bug, or I think I think it was because I'd, I'd been annoyed at the results that I wanted to to do better, and um, yeah, I, I kept going, but <clears throat> I I always felt a bit insecure because I never really knew why I was running so much better than I was before. I I think. Maybe it's because I hadn't had a prolonged period of not being injured before when I was training when I was training previously. But I I wasn't really doing anything different than I'd done before kids, so it it was very it was very odd. I kept I kept running well, and I I didn't really know why. But maybe your motivation was, a- was in the right place, or you'd like <laughs> you know you, well you're saying you're you're almost enjoying it more. You're yes. not you're not you're not doing it to get to get to an international standard you're doing it because you're you're running to like have some time to yourself to relax to like you know enjoy it and then also that's the experience you were having with the orienteering like taking the pressure off just like enjoying being in the forest for the yes. sake, for the sake of it i think i think that's partly true but then i think the more you get drawn in the pressure comes back again and um in 20, 2012 i got injured at the start of the year um but i really wanted to to make the world champs again that year so i ran a lot with injury and that's that's very hard to do you realize if you run and it's painful and you do it again and again and again for weeks on end you don't really get the endorphins that you usually get from running so although in my head i was motivated enough to do it because i wanted to run the world champs i 
I don't think psychologically it was doing me good. My determination really, it wasn't helping me out there. And by the end of 2012, although I'd had some amazing results at the World Champs in 2012, um, I'd, I'd got quite depressed and I, I stopped orienteering again in October. I think I picked up a map three times between October and the end of the year then. So it was another quite hard time. And the end of 2012, I, I'd, I'd been to see the terrain in Finland and the Finnish terrain in 2013, the World Champs there, the terrain is like nothing else, the most beautiful terrain I've seen in my life. And I'm, I really wanted to go and run the World Champs. <laughs> but the problem was that I'd, I, I wasn't in love with the sport at all. So um, I didn't quite know what to do. I had a bit of help from a friend who's a psychologist. And she said, I said, I, I had a problem. It, it, at the end of December, I was entering the JK, as you do to save money. Get, <laughs> get the first entry rate. <laughs> and the JK was a selection race. And I said to her, well... You know, even entering it, it freaks me out a bit. You know, my, I'm getting sweaty palms and I'm, I'm starting to panic at the thought of having to go back with the pressure again and racing again. And she said, well, what you want to do is you want to start your year at the very basics, reminding yourself why you enjoy the sport. Think of some really fun orienteering to do, something something you really enjoy. And um, every week, you know, build up from there. So... The first orienteering I did was went to FVO Wednesday night event. The FVO night event's absolute blast because everyone turns up in the forest. You get a map. Some of the sharks go, and everyone bombs it off. No one's navigating. <laughs> you eventually find some controls. You end up at the finish and you go to the pub. And um, that's great. <laughs> it was great. That's so a deal. I went and did this, and I started five minutes everyone else because I didn't want the pressure of racing anyone. And um, it's just reminding yourself being back in the forest with a map in your hands trying to find the controls you remind yourself why you fell in love with the sport in the first place and it was through little steps i think the next training i did i drove to a forest that i really liked um and i went around by myself but i planned the training course yeah great loved it and i kept building up these small events until i think it was six weeks in before i did um before i did a proper ring tune competition that went really well I got to the JK and um, the sprint went, sprint race went okay. I think I was third. And then the middle race, I won it by two minutes, I think. And I was like, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> After the strain of not actually wanting to pick up a map at the start of the year, you get into a situation where I can race and race really well. Um, it was just, I was so chuffed myself. And the next day, I remember um, the commentary beforehand, Andy, Andy Monroe and Chris Poole were interviewing me. Oh, how do you think it's going to go today? Um, how on the long race? And you just want to say, I don't care. I don't care how I've done. I've already done the middle race and done really well after not wanting to compete three months ago. You know, I've, I've, that, that for me is the prize enough. And um, yeah, I came second that year, but it was great. <laughs> I was really pleased to be able to get myself from not wanting to go into it at all to managing to get around the JK with a, a win. Yeah, mm. it's pleasing. That that's that's quite amazing to hear, really, because I think now in the current time, there's a lot of vocalization vocalization around those issues of depression in sport and mental yeah. health and all those. But back then, there was no talk about it at all, and it was very much just no stigmatized. So. Yeah. How was that dealing with that kind of in isolation on your own? Um, I never really felt in isolation because I had a, a little psychologist friend who was an orienteer and she was massively helpful. Um, but I think when it came to team things going going away is when I really felt the pressure. But there's the absolute certainty in my head. I didn't want to ruin anyone else's performance through whatever issues I was going through. So I made it very clear. You, you put on a game face because no mm. one else deserves their competition to be ruined from any strain that you're feeling. So as much as I did, I hid it. But that was very much on purpose because, you know, I want my, I want my teammates to perform as well as I could. Wow. As well, yeah. yeah, as well as I could. So... 20, 2013, after that JK, I promptly got an Achilles injury, which was um, quite quite hard to deal with because Achilles injuries, the way you deal with them initially is to back off. You you back off the injury, you hope it gets better, and then you gradually reintroduce running. And um, when you're trying to train for the world champs and you've got the mindset that you just plug through the pain, 
you make it worse and you make it worse, which is mm. what I was doing. So running with the Achilles injury, I got away with it for a certain amount of time. I was doing T Eukla, uh, no T Mila. I was doing T Mila for OK Tizra in my Swedish club. Uh, we had Simone on the last leg. I was in the first team. I must have been one of the middle legs, maybe, maybe third leg. And my um, Achilles was fairly sore, but then my calf totally went about a K and a half to go from the finish. <laughs> oh God. But when you're in the first, you get round, you get to the finish. I hobbled to the finish, crossed over, and um, yeah, and then that was that was a really tough injury. You can't just can't run on that. So I cross trained like mad for the world champs that year, and I really wanted to run the long race. The long race was all I wanted to run, um, and they picked me for the middle and the relay, and and they they said to me, look, the long. It's going to be too long for your injuries. You, you know, we don't think you should run it. We want you to run the middle and the relay. And at that point, I should have said, no, I'm not doing it. Because mentally, in my head, that's all I'd trained for. I'd trained for the long. And the middle and the relay were not what I wanted. But I didn't have the strength of mind to say, no, I'm not doing it. So I went and it just, it wasn't a good experience at all. <laughs> so uh, that was that was, that was was particularly hard to take, that, that world champ. So... After that, I decided that I needed to get some, I needed to get some um, proper psychological help to help me deal with the depression that I was feeling, um, which which did did help a lot really. Um, the things that I learned that were most important were um, that people want to help you. You know, with depression, if you don't mm. talk to anyone, you think you think that's a good thing to do, but actually. The analogy he made, you know, if you, if you tripped up and dropped all your shopping in the middle of a street, people would come and help you. They'd help gather your gather your belongings because people are generally nice. And orienteering's like that times ten. You get a lot of nice orienteering people at orienteer, and maybe perhaps if you asked for help, people would would help you more. Um, and the other the other thing I learned as well was, you know, I'd said. I talked about my accident. I talked about how naive I'd been beforehand. You know, I'd, I said, well, I'd gone through all of my junior years thinking, oh, you know, life's good and everything. And I said, well, I didn't realize that, you know, that that, that bad things happen and, you know, life's, life's not all happy and, and everything. And he said to me, well, perhaps a bad thing happened to you and you think life's bad. Perhaps when you're a junior, that's real life. It's real life. That, that things go well and you, it's unlucky that this bad things happen to you but you should try and be like be like the junior you were before so that that really helped as well you know seeing that perhaps my negative outlook was was because of the bad thing that had happened to me rather than everything bad being in life <laughs> if you see what I mean <laughs> yeah no absolutely so did, yeah. so that going away getting out how did that kind of rekindle anything or the desire for because I think 2015 had been announced by that point, hadn't it? Of it had been. Home and World that, Champs. Yeah. What I decided um, when it was announced, I decided I'm going to get to 2015, run my home walk, and no more. Um, no right. more. So that was very much in my mindset. Um, I was determined to get to 2015. So um, 2014, I again went to World Champs. That was in Italy. That was amazing. Yeah, Beautiful Italy, train yeah. again. That was really really cool and by this stage um i was working with nick lightfoot as my coach and i think you you probably too both know nick and nick's got a really interesting um theory on how to orienteer um and at the time we didn't have any squad technical coaches and it was something that that really I, i i found myself really struggling with as um as a mother your time is very, very precious. You're very busy. And um, when we had Tony Luzola the, as, a, as a, the lead coach in British Orienteering, he was great in telling me all that I needed to do. He's like, on the start, I need to be saying, well, you're going to take bearings and these sorts of terrains, the route choices, the things to avoid are, and I'd set off and I'd run the course and that'd be fine. But then when, when his contract ended and we didn't have a lead coach, I'd start races and I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't, I hadn't hadn't got any time in my life to sit down and work out any strategies for the orienteering. Mm, so to kind of do a bit of geeking and to like uh, there was know, no no yeah. geeking, and I didn't have any confidence in what I was doing. So, um, 
joining up with Nick as a coach was really useful because he would just tell me what to do again and it was just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a really interesting theory in orienteering that um if you pick a if you pick a route that's fairly easy, you can run it really hard and and that makes for good orienteering. If you run hard and confidently in the forest, you run so much quicker than you would if you were hesitant. So if often when you pick a tricky route, although it, it looks like you're doing something really clever, if you're you hesitating the whole time, then um it's not really working for you. So it's quite it's, it's, it's something that really worked for me, um, the way that I orienteer. And what was really nice about it is you go to these big internationals where there's really intricate terrain and quite often on the routes, you know, there'll be a path route around the outside. And it's not really cool to take the path route a lot of times because these Scandinavians, they run straight for everything because they've lived, grown up in Scandinavia. It's quite easy orienteering for them. And I think um, as someone that hasn't, you feel pressure to take the sophisticated route, whereas the Brit route, it goes enough jk's you know that you can peg it around that path and take a compass bearing in and and get to the control and then yeah it's a really successful technique which um i'd recommend for anyone really and Mm. if you want to find out more ask nick because he'll tell you all about it yeah your brain's not like wasting time working out all the technical bits you're not wasting energy like using your brain to work out the technical bits you've always got more energy to plow into just run Exactly. And it's things like, you know, if you're taking compass bearing, I don't want you, I don't want you really looking at, at the surroundings and trying to work out where you are on the map. You know, if you're taking a bearing, just run hard on that straight bearing until you either get to the control or whatever you're going to bounce back on beyond the control if you don't get it. And it, it makes a lot of sense. So, so that was very useful yeah. in being applied to Italy or to Scotland or... Yes, I mean, I think some parts of Italy, the, the middle was quite intricate. And, and Nick's technique in dealing with that is you've got to make it simple. You've got to work out from the map how how you can make it make the route simple and then run the route hard. So um, it, it's variations on a theme because obviously there's not always going to be a path route. So, yeah, it, it mm. did work. It did work well there. And it just gives you so much confidence on the start line knowing that you've got a, a plan like that. So I, I was a lot happier in my orienteering, certainly, um, when when I'd had his help. He's, he's, I, I still had tough times with injuries, but um, I, felt, I felt like somebody was really helping me and, and focus on the right things in my orienteering. So it was good. It was good. Yeah, technically, you know, you've got, you've, someone's got your back, you've taken in the information, exactly. you've found someone as yeah. well who like works well with you and is in is, is a has a technique that you can use because everybody's loads yeah. of different techniques people can use. It was it was interesting. We were looking I, I needed a coach for for ages and that was acknowledged um by various like Liz Campbell was saying you need to find yourself a coach and my friend Jason and Mum were saying you need to find yourself a coach. And we'd worked through all the, the people that were likely candidates in Scottish or in Turing, and Jason said to me, You know the problem? They're just all too nice, you know? They'd say, what do you think you should be doing, Claire? And it's not that Nick's not nice, because he's absolutely lovely, but he's got a very set, he's got set views, and that's what I needed. I need someone with a rigid opinion who says, it would be good if you did this, rather than saying to me, what do you think? Um, (laughs) Because I had no thoughts. I was a mother that worked full time. You know, don't ask me to think about orienteering. Tell me what to do. You know. Well, maybe that's the thing that's too much in orienteering that you don't see as much in other sports. You know, like athletics or I don't know cycling. Victoria Pendleton is not really going to make any decisions about what she does. She's going to get told this is exactly what you have to do. This is what you eat. This is what you you know you do to be able to. Mm. This is what you think to be able to win gold medals. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So uh, I, I, there's different styles of coaching, but that I, th- I think I don't, I don't, I personally, as an athlete, I didn't want to be asked what, 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 what I thought I should be doing. You know, I, I knew, I knew how to do the physical training. I knew what worked for me, where the, the orienteering techniques. Yeah. I, I didn't want to have to think about it. I didn't have enough time. Well, that's why you, that's why you wanted a coach. You know, you want someone else to tell you what to do because you don't know what to do. So. Exactly. Exactly. It's quite hard saying that, though, because as an elite athlete, you're supposed to know that. So the first few geeking sessions with Nick, he's like, oh, what do you think the best route is? And I'm like, I don't know, Nick. And yeah, I think he was thinking, my God, you do to the world three world champs and you don't know how to get to his control. But, yeah. <laughs> and then what was WOC um, 2015 like? 
on you know home soil yeah what 2015 um i was running quite well that year until i'd got injured in about june i pulled my calf and then i cross trained up to the world champs and i knew i wasn't in the best of shape but i knew i had to do it i had to run 2015 because then i could stop and that's all they wanted to do so and um, i got picked for the team because i ran really well into world cup races and um I ran the world champs and it was one of those horrible races where the, the classic, the long, you know, when you're making a big mistake on the route choice and you realize after you five minutes in, I was just, oh mm. my God, it was horrific. But I got to the finish of that race and um, running down the running, I knew that I knew that I could stop, but I knew that I could finish and I knew that I could tick the goals. And for me, that was amazing because it, it made me feel like, you know, Back when that doctor told me I couldn't run again, I'd proved him wrong once and for all. It was done. And I finished that race. And um, I remember afterwards, I just lay in a tent, one of those little pop-up tents with, with a friend of mine. And I was just, I felt so elated after the worst swap performance I'd ever done. <laughs> because I, I felt, you you win different things in orienteering. You you know, Ida Bobach won and she got the gold medal. But, you know, I I won an awful lot. I got a lot of closure I'd done what I wanted and I, I won I won back my mental health and my peace of mind and after that I walked away from international orienteering but um, I'm so much happier for it now <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I went to those I'm glad I went to the hardship of running in injury with injuries and finding it hard mentally um, because having achieved my goals then I got a lot of peace after that so I'm, I'm much happier laid back for having done that but it was really hard work to do yeah so it was worth all the you know putting all the pressure on yourself the pain, to the all the pain and everything absolutely if you yeah. hadn't done that you'd feel worse now yeah yeah i mean i feel like there's unfinished business whereas for me there is no unfinished business now it's, it's great and that i think that's what a lot of people don't get when they finish their careers as well mm. that moment of completion they don't get to walk out on their own yeah. terms yeah I mean, I haven't got any, I haven't got any world chance medals or anything, but I've, I, it was very, very neatly finished what I wanted to do. And I think it must be hard otherwise. I mean, how do people decide when to stop? Yeah. yeah. yeah See, tricky. one of my questions I was thinking was going to ask you was, would you ever be tempted, would you, were you ever in that moment tempted to go on anymore? But I can't in a million years imagine you answering yes to that because you so well, set in your head that you didn't want to, that was it. I don't have the determination anymore. I don't, I don't have that 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 feeling of unfinished business at all i i often think well it'd be interesting to go to a world champs and run it when you're happy and chilled and laid back but <laughs> but, but is that even possible probably not I don't, I don't know if it is i don't know if it is i think everyone that goes to world champs is slightly stressed aren't they uh, yeah we were looking at last night i was running with the students they were doing some sprint training knockout sprint you know when you've got three courses and you have to pick the quickest oh yes I'd picked within five seconds. I'm like, what on earth is this all about? And then you think, well, if I was actually in the world champs, uh, you'd you'd have all that pressure and that tension, and that twenty minutes, twenty seconds must go really quickly. And you've That's got everybody true. else lined up next to you. You've got someone to your left. You've got someone to your right. You're probably on the telly if you've managed to yeah. get through to the semi-finals or the finals. Yeah. Whoa. And one of my most frustrating points as an orienteer um was i got into the pub once with somebody and he came over and said oh you're well champs and it was some really bad run he's like oh what you wanted to have done i watched it on the gps what you wanted to have done was and i'm just like oh you have no idea <laughs> you don't have that pressure of trying to you know, pull it all together in a big race how can you sit there and tell me what i should have done but yeah it looks easy back home one of the things, one of the yeah, advances... Yeah, when you're shouting at the computer going, it's just there, it's <laughs> yeah, just exactly. there. Oh, I know I'm saying in the commentary box that I'm going, you're going wrong. Especially <laughs> how slowly the dots move as well. It's like, they oh, just turn left. Yeah. It's simple if they turn left. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't really like to watch the GPS anymore. For me, or in terms of solitary sport, you're out there in the wild by yourself and it's really weird the gps having someone else watching you and someone else there with you i i don't like it as an athlete and i just think it feels a bit intrusive when you're watching mm. someone that's trying to do their best and maybe not always mm. 
Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That if the whole nature and the whole joy of it is being alone, then even watching somebody else do it feels very wrong. Yes. Yeah. So strange. What's your like relationship and your role in orienteering now? Then. Um. Well, I had been performance director of Scottish orienteering for a while before lockdown came, and I realised with homeschooling and a new baby that it was going to be too much hard work. <laughs> um. So I. I. I I've, I've taken a back seat and all of that, and I'm just enjoying orienteering just now. It's it's good. Even in spite of the the COVID pandemic. Well, do you know what? I've been doing more orienteering than normal because um, oh, we've right. got lots of we had nothing else to do at the weekend, and we've got some friends that we're trying to teach how to orienteer. So there's lots of map runs around us. So we've been going to all these areas that I'd never usually go to because they're not very exciting, and we've been taking kids around map runs. So yeah, it's been good. But um. Huh. That, I realised the other day that I can't think of one Edinburgh area that's got an intricate contour anywhere. So it would be nice to get somewhere else, <laughs> I must admit. Yeah, I'm feeling that a lot now being stuck in the South. Like it's just yeah. been that for a whole year. Just and thinking of what, you know, it was meant to be, you know, the JK on some fantastic sand dunes. And I'm like, oh, mm. I would love to see some sand dunes right now. I actually oh, found quite, a... It's quite depressing. I found a patch of bilberry and some pine forest in the Midlands at the weekend and I was blown away. It was like I was back in Scandinavia. It was amazing. I couldn't, couldn't get enough of it. I think one of the things I really miss, like not being an elite orienteer, is when you go to things like the World Cup and the World Champs, you know they've tried to pull their best area out of the bag and they've tried to put on their best course. And um, it's hard not having that again, I think. When you go, to, it's hard to know... Which, if you go to Norway, it's hard to know which event's going to be the best and on the best area, and hard to know, you know, which which course is the best to run. Whereas you go to a World Cup and somebody has made the best possible course on the best possible area. It's, uh, yeah, it's one thing to miss, I think. Yeah, never really mm. thought about that before. I've still been running elite for a while because you go to an event, even in Britain, and you sort of think that the elite they probably put a bit more time in than most other events, most other courses. So. It's getting to the stage where I think I'm going to have to stop, though, because it's getting a bit far. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not the only one of, you know, Sarah Rollins as well often does the 21s and all that kind of yeah. thing as well, you know, just because they can. It's Also, I think because it's some good kind of competition as well, you know, not there's not many, there's such a drop off in the women's classes, especially mm. in 35s, but also kind of in 40s. And then it starts to build back up again. But the only way yeah. you're going to get like kind of a fun race but you take the pressure off but let's see how you fare against x y and z then exactly opportunity yeah a few years ago heather um sarah and i all ran i think it was w35 at the sixth day we all agreed to run the same thing and that's always a bit fun but i don't think they're up for it this year sarah's entered w21e and i've entered but i'm pretty certain i'm gonna drop down (laughs) (laughs) it was a slight tangent but one thing i was going to ask it um because seeing you quite vocal on Twitter regarding the cross-country yeah. distances and things. So, because that got my mind going from W21 yeah. to W35 so forth. What's your kind of, and we had a chat about it a few weeks ago um, mm-hmm. uh, with a group from from Sweden. What's your kind of view on the ex- the winning times debate and extending it for the women, cutting it down for the men and, and so forth in terms of the long distance? It's tricky. I think they've got a different perspective if you're an international athlete as what's best in internationals isn't perhaps what's best in the UK. I think we're seeing mm. the same in cross-country, where the world cross-country champs, I think the men and women run the same distance. Whereas, you know, in the Scottish national cross-country champs, they've equalised the distance. And quite a lot of people in my club no longer want to run it because it's an extra 2K. It's 10K as opposed to 8K. 8K, you've got a, you've got a great field. And, you know, it, it's everyone's national cross-country champs. So everyone, you know, should should feel welcome to run it. I think if something like the JK wanted the same distance or the same winning time for men and women, that's absolutely fine. As long as you ask the athletes that are running it, you know, all of the athletes, not just the elite, what they think, because you want to, we want to preserve as many people in, in the elite races in our sport as possible. We want to get participation as high as possible. So yeah, I, I don't have a problem with any sort of equalization as long as they ask the people that actually run the races. They've, yeah. done, they've, they've done this in English, um, in the English cross country. They've they've asked everyone, and I think they were rather surprised at the results when the women said, actually, I quite like running 8K. 
But AK is a great distance as well. When we get it in the cross country league, it's fantastic. Yeah, because you get all the middle distance runners turning up for it as well. It's Mm. not just an endurance thing, so it's it's much more fun, I think. Definitely, especially compared to when the uh, the Midlands cross country a couple of years ago was meant to be ten k, and they mismeasured the course, and it turned out to be fifteen. So. As long as it's not that, then Did it's fine. Oh my goodness me. <laughs> yeah, That's I thought I was shock. a bit slow when I, I looked at my watch and went, wow, I've done five minute Ks for, uh, yeah. <laughs> for cross country. And it was uh, an extra kind of three or four K long. Um, mm. But yeah, I, and I suppose it comes down to that definition, doesn't it, of what is elite because the definition with COVID that's kind of thrown a spanner in the works of what, you know, is elite, just someone who's paid or not, but orienteering, it's actually elites are anyone who enters yes. the elite category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky, but hopefully we get an answer to something. Well, either way, and then uh, the debate can kind of go from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you so much to Claire for chatting to us. Uh, that was probably one of my most favourite interviews I've done. We've done um, mm, podcast. Yeah. And yeah, I just, just just feels like the comeback queen in so many different kind of coming back from so many different things. And um, yeah, I hope you guys could take a lot kind of from that chat because I know um, we certainly did. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. But that's, that's pretty much it for this episode. Um, quickly, we have a word from our sponsors. Envy, Will, you have been using their kind of sprint specialist shoes almost. Yes, yeah, yeah, the uh, XXC, the extreme cross-country shoe. So designed for sprint orienteering for uh, the perfect combination of being able to run on tarmac and grass at the same time. And I used it at the sprint test races at the weekend. Saw quite a few other people using it as well. Um, So words getting out there, which is good to see. And yeah, really, I've I've not used it in a competition before and I, I knew it was a good shoe, but I was so surprised at how... Often I think when you're transitioning between grass and tarmac, you feel like there could be a bit of slipping or you know, maybe you're unsure about your grip, but it was just good grip all the way, all the time, and you can just commit fully to the course. So no, I, definitely the right shoe to race in. Um, shame, I didn't, shame I didn't do it justice, but there we go. <laughs> um, and where can we get those from if you, if you wanted to uh, uh, get some in the UK? In the UK, you can get them from um, Envy Straight UK, which is run by Mary Fleming. And the email address for Mary is envystraight.uksales at gmail.com. That's N-V-I-I-S-T-R, the number eight, dot uksales at gmail.com. But yeah, that is it for this episode. We will have a sprint episode with Claire out next week. And then in a couple of weeks time, I think we're going to do a little bit of a preview for those European championships coming up in the in Switzerland we may only have four athletes selected to go but it's hopefully going to be a fantastic competition nevertheless and we will have that full preview for you then so we will be back in another few weeks time 